Welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast. I'm Jen Stevens. I'm a retired teacher, the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, and I love nothing more than building community. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've spent my life helping others through my work in healthcare and as a volunteer for various organizations. We are friends who share a love of learning, problem solving, and bringing people together. Each week, join us as we share inspiring stories and bring you new ideas designed to help you live your best life. So now let's learn something new, get inspired, and have some fun. everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing fairly well. Fairly well. I, well, I'm in the middle of a big project. I'm going to give you all a lesson, okay? My mother-in-law came over two weeks ago to help me paint trim in my house. And she had this wonderful idea that she was going to paint this built-in cabinet and bookshelf that I have. And it had chalk paint on it. And I don't know if you're familiar with chalk paint, but after you chalk paint it, you put like a wax sealer on it. So it was like waxy. Okay. It's like tacky almost. Yeah. So I asked her, do we need to put something on that to cut that wax sealer? Now she's the painter. She paints kitchen cabinets and like, right. (laughs) She's like, nope, nope. We just need to wipe it down with crud cutter and paint it. Well, after putting two coats of paint on it won't stick. Oh, no. So I went to the hardware store, started talking to them. And apparently, when you paint over chalk paint, you have to wipe it with a chemical called TSP. And then you have to put a, I always say this backwards, a bonding primer on it so that it adheres to the surface so that when you paint over the bonding primer, it adheres to it. That makes sense. We did not do that step. Uh So I am currently stripping all of the paint off and starting from scratch. And it is well, not fun. I know. I know it's <laughs> not. That's a big lesson. Don't skip steps. Yeah. Like know what you're doing before you start a big project because. And I think this is a big lesson people are going to start learning more and more after chalk paint has been so popular. Yes. And they're going to want to. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because you're going to have a lot of things covered with chalk paint out there in the world. Yes. Oh, yes. gosh. Well, that, you can do it. And it's going to be so worth it when it's done. Well, you know what I've learned? Lots of I things. I learned something sure. about myself. Well, I've learned a lot of things. I got a new tool set last night for Valentine's Day. I'm very excited about that. Power tools. Love it. Battery operated. I learned that I actually don't mind doing this painting, stripping, and there's something kind of meditative about it. Yeah. I don't know how to, to explain it. I'm not a person that does tedious tasks. Like that's like, I don't sew, I don't cross stitch. I don't do any of that. But there's something about like, you see the finished product and you see you're making progress. That's kind of satisfying. Well, that's good. And I just put on an audio book and just go to work. And, and it's exercise. You're it is your exercise. Body. Yes. Yeah. And then hours pass. Oh, I can tell you it's exercise. My whole body hurts at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of therapeutic, I guess. I don't know. I've always seen people who are like, oh, I love to refinish furniture. And I'm always like, why? But it's kind of Yeah, because it seems like it would be boring, but it isn't. It's not. It's not. And I always say I'm not creative, but maybe, maybe I have a little creative side. Well, you know, I took woodshop in middle school. Okay. And I loved it. Like, I, I love that, like, building and working with my hands type thing. See, I took home ec, and I love well, that. Well, I purposely got kicked out of clothing cat class That's so I so could funny. join Woodshop. <laughs> it was across the hall, and it looked like so much more fun than clothing. Home ec was the most fun thing I ever did in school. Isn't that weird? That is funny. You are a little homemaker, though, and I'm I not. So. I love I love to decorate, and we we cooked, and we sewed, and yeah, like, clothing and foods were my worst classes. We did. We had an interior design unit that was fun. I loved <laughs> it. I would like to go back and take home ec again, and maybe teach it. That would be really fun. Do they still have home ec? I don't know. You're going to be so proud of me, though, because since I've started painting and decorating, I mean, like I've actually bought stuff to hang on the walls, which I haven't had. I've lived in this house forever. Yay. And my house will be decorated. Well, it's coming together. It looks really good. The things I've seen that you've shown me. I love it. Yeah. I'm excited to get it done. Yeah. Well, good. It's gone on long enough. 
Well, now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And today we have a contribution that Anna Maria Pantano shared with us via email. She wrote, hi, Jen and Sherry. When I heard this story on our local news channel, I knew I needed to share this with you. A local high school cheerleading team from Brentwood, Long Island, New York, had a great opportunity to go to nationals to compete, but they needed a little help getting there. I am including the story from the news. So the Brentwood High School cheerleading team qualified for the Universal Cheerleaders Association Nationals Competition in Orlando on February the 10th, and they were seeking over $5,000 from their community to help get to Florida for the competition. For senior Jackie Para and sophomore Nicole Acosta, the exciting news came after they had lost all of their belongings, clothes, and cheer equipment in separate house fires, which happened just a week apart. So Brentwood varsity cheer coach Tanisha Pessoa says Para and Acosta have never missed a practice since the fires. The cost to pay for all the girls to go to nationals is especially overwhelming for some of the teammates' families now. It is very expensive, but we've been doing a lot of fundraising, so we're hoping to cover it all, said one of the cheerleaders. The cheerleaders have planned a special send-off event at the high school on February 6th at 6.30 to show off their routine with hopes that their community will come out and celebrate with them and show them some support. So Campbell's Bakery owner, Gregory Nap... Napolitano is how I would say that. Napolitano. Napolitano. (laughs) Yeah, I stumbled when I saw that. Napolitano saw the local news story about the team's fundraising efforts and he felt the need to help. This is something really special and I wanted the girls to go down and have a good time, said the owner. Brentwood varsity cheer coach Tanisha Pessoa was invited to Campbell's Bakery for a special treat. The owner handed the coach a check for $3,000, helping the team exceed their GoFundMe page's goal of $5,000. The cheer coach says the support means everything to her and her team. And when the cheerleaders return, the bakery owners say they will send over cake for them to celebrate. The team departed for Orlando on February the 8th, and the coach shared that any extra money that they raised, they will use for their summer youth cheer camp program for the next class of cheerleaders. Well, that's such a great story. Way to way to help the community for that bakery, Campbell's Bakery. That's amazing. Can you imagine losing everything in a fire for two of the girls well, to have that? two girls. I know. Wow. That's, yeah. That's hard. So. So listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. Before we get to the life lesson of the week, I want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that helps make it possible for us to bring you the podcast, and that's Hungry Root. So back when I was using Hungry Root consistently, I had my cholesterol under control, and I do have some family history of high cholesterol. My mother and her father and brothers have struggled with theirs all of their adult life. And back when I was using Hungry Root, I had exceptional HDL. I had the other numbers looking great. My triglycerides were low. And since branching away from Hungry Root and moving into a lower carb, higher fat eating style, my cholesterol came back as a big wake up call. So this is one of those examples about how biodiversity works. Keto works great for some and lowers their cholesterol, but that is not me, unfortunately. So I am back to choosing meals with plenty of veggies, quality lean protein and whole grains and legumes. And Hungry Root helps me do that. It's so easy and healthy with minimum fuss. You can either shop by recipes or just order individual grocery items and create your own recipes. I tend to do a little mix of both. You choose recipes and they send you the groceries needed. The meals require minimal prep work. Many of the meats are pre-cooked. The veggies are prepped and ready to use. Last weekend, I had a quick, healthy, and fresh meal in minutes at work. I used their sous vide chicken to make a great meal with quinoa and spinach with lemon tahini drizzled over it. Monday, I had lemongrass chicken with cauliflower. Both meals were ready to eat in under 10 minutes. If you use the link I provide in show notes, you can save $50 on your first order. So visit the show notes tab for a link or go to lifelessonscommunity.com and visit the shop with us tab for a link. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk about improving blood glucose control to improve your life. Do you want to learn how to improve your quality of life? Do you need more energy throughout the day? Are you tired of those afternoon slumps? Maybe you are searching for better, more restful sleep. 
Do you personally suffer from high blood sugar or have a personal or family history of diabetes? Today's episode is for you. Today we are joined by Dr. Beverly Yates, a diabetes expert with a life goal of preventing and or reversing diabetes for over 3 million individuals. That is quite a goal. I love Welcome, that goal. Welcome, Dr. Yates. Hey, hey. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And I hope that everyone learns at least one thing that they didn't already know. I'm looking forward to unpacking some of the areas of confusion, giving people hope and inspiration, and just an understanding that we all have to take charge of our health because we're the ones who are responsible for it. Yeah, it's true. And I think all of us know at least one person, probably more, going through you know type 2 diabetes at this point. My dad is diabetic, and so I've watched him struggle with that for years now. And I, th- I think that your message and your goal to prevent and or reverse diabetes is a good one because we can do things before we get that diagnosis to ensure that we don't ever get it. So before we get into all of that, what is the lesson you hope to share with our listeners today? The lesson I have to share with our wonderful listeners is this. You have to take action. If you know this is an issue for you, you've already gotten the wake-up call. If you suspect this is an issue for you or if it's in your family history and therefore you may have genetic vulnerabilities, you need to get after it and take action. Because here's the deal. Issues with blood sugar, especially chronically high blood sugar, they don't go on vacation. They don't give people a break. They don't care who you are, where you went to school, who you know, how much is or isn't in your bank account, etc. It's relentless, the damage that high blood sugar can do. And so as such, you're going to have to be your own best friend and make self-care your number one priority and untangle whatever the blocks are, the issues are that are causing you to have these blood sugar problems. The good news is that they're rooted in lifestyle. And lesson is, is that your lifestyle is something you have some control over. There's going to be five factors that Jen and I are going to talk about that are really important around this. And each and every one is a way to think of as an opportunity to invite you into caring for your own health. I think that's that's important, that that we we have to take action and that we can. That's the thing. It's not it's not like, well, I've got diabetes now. No, I mean, it, yes, you should be like, wow, okay. But you can do some things. And so the five factors for blood sugar control. Go ahead, Sherry. Oh, I was just going to say, so many people think, oh, it runs my family. I'm going to get it. They right. don't think that they can take steps to not be that person that gets it. And the other thing, I work in healthcare too, doctor. One thing people don't know, like one of the fastest growing branches of medicine is diabetes care and management and dialysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that is that is not a place you want to go. <laughs> so, I, I mean, if I could urge you to do one thing with your health, it is to control your blood sugar because it doesn't just affect your kidneys. It affects your heart. It affects, affects everything. Yeah, that's so. true. Absolutely. That's a great point that you raised, Sherry. So, you know, people's mindset and their thoughts are so powerful. Like what we believe, you know, what goes on between our ears often determines our outcome, whether we like that or not. If we think we can, we're right. If we think we can't, we're right. And when people have a family history and it's like, oh, I'm just going to get it. Like I'm doomed. That's not true. You can, you can absolutely have that conversation with that genetic predisposition, your environmental expression of your genes, the epigenetics, however fancy word you want to put towards it. Bottom line is you still can be successful with achieving blood sugar, blood glucose control, but you do need to know what you're doing and be able to then put it into action. Just thinking about it won't get it. Absolutely. I, and I love that. It's not predetermined. You're not destined to have it. So you you mentioned that there are five factors for blood sugar control. Let's talk about those. Sure. So Jim, the five factors that I know of of lifestyle that are the most effective for blood sugar control, the, the fastest path to success is going to be nutrition. We know that nutrition is the bullseye of the target. I think everyone is aware that what we eat makes a big difference when it comes to blood sugar control. Other aspects that are so important will include Meal timing, when you eat your meals, along with what you're eating matters. And that has that beautiful overlap with intermittent fasting and other fantastic healing regimens that are around that work so beautifully for the human frame. The other three factors are sleep. I think a lot of people don't understand the factors that go into sleep and its interaction with blood sugar. Then stress. Many people with diabetes know that stress affects their blood sugar numbers, but they don't always understand why. And they might not think of things like surgery or accidents as being a stressful event that could also hijack blood sugar, independent from maybe chronic levels of high stress, right? 
And then, of course, the fifth one is exercise. I think just about everybody knows that exercise is a factor. They may not know necessarily what kinds of exercise, but they know exercise matters for blood sugar control. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, that's a great list. Before we get into all of this, mm-hmm. can we just back up? Let's say there is a person out there that is just really confused what blood sugar is. And mm-hmm. a lot of people get insulin and blood sugar all confused and they don't understand how that works. So can you just do a brief lesson on blood sugar, what it is and how it works? Sure, Sherry, you got it. So blood sugar has another name. It's called glucose. And blood sugar goes around your body, right? It's escorted throughout your blood. And it is a basic building block for life's energy. It is the source of energy for the body, right? Now, having said that, and because our blood goes everywhere and blood sugar is being escorted everywhere, if you have too much blood sugar, then this becomes a problem. So now let's put a pin in that. We're going to come right back to it. Let's talk about our friend insulin. Insulin is an amazing hormone. If you are a person who has something other than type 1 or 1.5 diabetes, your pancreas is making insulin. Therefore, the insulin is being made by your body. It goes out into your bloodstream, and it partners up with the glucose to help get the glucose, the blood sugar, inside your cell for energy. I'm I'm making this as simple as I can. Right, good. If you have (laughs) too much blood sugar happening, too much glucose, over a longer period of time, in the case of type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, your pancreas is being asked to make more and more insulin to catch up with what's essentially a five-alarm fire. It's like the fire truck can never catch up with the fire. And so then you get into an issue where the organ called the pancreas is being asked to make insulin over and over. It gets tired. It doesn't get a rest period. It doesn't drop down, Mm -hmm. right? So the deal is with too much blood sugar at once, insulin often can't keep up. That is the insulin your body makes. If you take insulin as a medicine, trying to mimic what your body would make, it's the similar issue. It's hard to keep up with the demands of high blood sugar. So as such, the timing of the two isn't optimal. There's too much blood sugar is the bottom line. It will then link to the naturally occurring proteins in your blood for a process that's called glycation. G-L-Y-C-A-T-I-O-N, glycation. And it creates these big molecules called proteoglycans where the glucose, the blood sugar, has now bonded with, linked with, if you will, cross-linked technically, with the proteins that are naturally occurring in the blood. These take up way more space. And this is where people's blood vessels and vascular system get so gummed up. That's why people with diabetes are at risk of going blind, losing their vision, diabetic retinopathy, and all the visual problems. This is why the kidneys get hammered. The kidneys hate high blood sugar. Oh, they hate it. That's why there's frequent thirst and urination, trying to find a way to dilute this stuff, and it doesn't work, right? That's why there's problems with peripheral neuropathy. The nervous Mm -hmm. system doesn't like it either. Mm -hmm. And it's on the periphery, not central for your nervous system, because fingertips, nose, pelvis, excuse me, pelvic floor, ears, penis, clitoris, toes, your toes, right? Those are all the endpoints of your body's blood circulation. So if you get the blood flow gummed up there because of this cross-linking from glycation, Those are going to be the places that have the problem first. This is why diabetics often, not often, but unfortunately, sadly, still in today's world, wind up with amputations. They start to lose toes, lose their lower legs because the gravity is going to hit there first, right? This whole process is multi-systemic. It affects your immune system. It makes you much more vulnerable to colds, flus, and other contagious illnesses. It means there's wound healing issues, right? So that simple little cut doesn't heal. It takes a long time, leading people vulnerable to more infections. And as if all of that isn't enough, it also interferes with other hormonal balance issues like your thyroid system, your adrenal system, leptin and ghrelin, and your ability to feel satiated when you eat a meal or tell when you're actually hungry. You know, are you full? Like Some people get into the cycle of perpetually wanting to snack. This blood sugar issue, the glucose issue with insulin, it breaks a lot of things when it's not in a healthy balance. Wow. Yeah, that's true. So it just, it basically gunks up everything and nothing can function well. The longer you have chronic high levels of blood sugar, the worse it's going to be just all over your body, basically. All over your body. Yep. So number one was nutrition. Yes. And there are so many thoughts on nutrition and <laughs> blood sugar. I mean, we're talking from one end of the spectrum to the other. Mm-hmm. What, in your experience, what best helps control blood sugar in your patients? What type of diet? Or is it individual? 
That's a great question. It's actually both. So mm-hmm. there are individual responses to blood sugar things, right? Like, like glycemic control, blood sugar control is individual. So if yeah. I gave anyone a generic list of, let's say, low glycemic index foods, or low glycemic load foods, or foods that are on both lists, low glycemic index and low glycemic load, there's bound to be somebody in that crew who has a food intolerance or food sensitivity reaction and has a blood sugar spike to what is otherwise a healthy food. Whether it is quinoa, cauliflower, blueberries, it can be random things. It could be lettuce, although I have not seen lettuce yet, but it's a possibility, (laughs) right? (laughs) As one professor said, anything can cause anything. So it is individual in that way, but I don't want people to feel like they should freak out or give up. No, 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 no. It's great to start somewhere, and there are a lot of eating regimens out there, right? So I've been at this for over 30 years, and with the thousands of people I've helped, here's what I've found works consistently is focusing in on high-fiber, nutrient-dense foods. I'm going to say that again. High-fiber, nutrient-dense foods. Another way to say that is leafy green vegetables. Those are usually very helpful partners and not offending in any way, shape, or form. They can be made delicious. Whatever your cultural traditions are around cooking, I say start with those. Next, we're going to partner in healthy fats. Sometimes people are shocked to hear that fat can be healthy. They've heard from the big food industry, big ag, that Fats are all bad, which isn't true. We absolutely need fat in our diet and we need healthy fats, okay? Mm -hmm. The next partner, the third one I'm going to say, is lean, healthy protein. Ideally, if you're eating lean, healthy protein, you have two options. One is a plant-based option and one is from critters. If you go down the plant-based path, that's fine. But please, I beg you, don't turn into a carbotarian. If you're going to be a vegetarian or be a vegan, do it the way it should be. It's going to have to involve the leafy green vegetables, okay? Can we make an agreement about that? Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, real food and not trying to fake like it's beef or something. Stop it. No, Just be no. in that plant. Okay. If you're going to eat the critters, you want to make sure the critters ate the food that they are intended to eat. In other words, I was blessed to know my grandparents and one of my great-grandparents. If they were alive today, I'm telling you, I can't imagine going to them and saying, hey, you're going to go have a grass-fed hamburger because they would have laughed me out the room. They were like, what is wrong with you? Of course, cows eat grass. Like, why are you saying grass-fed beef? Right. right. Have we all lost our minds? Like, well, the, what we feed cows now is not what they fed them 70, 80, right. 100 years right. ago. We didn't put them out in fields of corn. No. <laughs> <laughs> fields of corn, fields of soy. We didn't put yes. them up with antibiotics. We didn't fill them, rather, with cement right before they were slaughtered and weighed, so they'd weighed more and on and uh. on. It's horrible what goes on. I mean, it's just not recognizable, right? So eat the best quality protein you can of those three I've talked about, right? So that's our leafy green friends. That's our healthy fats, healthy proteins, right? And complex, slow burning, not so easy to digest carbs. When I say not so easy to digest, I mean, it has much lower blood sugar impact. That's going to be your beans, legumes, peas, things like that. Yep. And, you know, it really does make a big difference, Beverly. I've just been wearing a CGM mm-hmm. and I've, I've been you know, doing experiments because it's fun to see what happens. And one day I had Ezekiel bread, which mm-hmm. is a sprouted grain. And, and so it's, it's very high fiber Ezekiel bread with avocado on top. And my blood sugar went up, I don't know, minimally like 16 points after eating that. And then the next day I had the exact same, but on sourdough bread. And my blood sugar shot up. And so someone might think carbs are carbs are carbs, right? Bread is bread, Ezekiel bread, sourdough bread, they're both bread. But watching it in action was such a difference. You know, the Ezekiel bread with the fiber, sprouted grain, I had such a slow blood sugar increase. And, and it was just as delicious as the sourdough bread and also satisfied me for longer. Yeah. And, you know, I had a similar experience when I was wearing my CGM. I was experimenting with different grains because I tend to crash after I eat. No matter what I eat, I have great hemoglobin A1C. My fasting insulin's great. I've been fasting for over seven years now. I should be really metabolically healthy, but I have always struggled with blood sugar crashes from as long as I can remember. So I'm constantly trying to figure out what foods do and do not work for me. And I had some brown rice with like some meat and some greens. I think I had like a burrito bowl type thing. No beans, right? heavy crash. Next day, same meal, added beans. Now, all these people are here like, don't eat carbs. I added beans, which are carbs. And I had much better blood glucose control. So that fiber really made yeah. a difference. 
Yeah, so I have two comments directly for that. One is that fiber, it's a blood sugar superhero. Yeah. Fiber is a blood sugar sponge. It really is. Fiber is a blood sugar sponge. It's such a win. There's no no bad things around the fiber if you're trying to control your blood sugar. You can get it from a lot of places. Your leafy greens, your chia seeds. It comes up beautifully bound with fresh fruits with the skin on. Not in heavy cling syrup. That's bad. Right. <laughs> Nuts, seeds. There's all kinds of sources for fiber. Ground flax seeds. There's just lots of options for fiber. So you can use different fibers based on what the meal is that you're planning to eat. But all I can say is that fiber is absolutely a blood sugar sponge. You know what the other blood sugar sponge is? What's that? Active working muscles. Exercise. Active working muscles. Just going for a walk. After Maybe you you're eat. in a meeting and you're stuck on Zoom and you can do wall sits or squats against your wall as long as your balance is good. There's all kinds of ways to work with your blood sugar. So if you can't hit the gym, if you're not an athlete, that's okay. We got you. It's all right. You can make it work. Dancing around. Again, active working (laughs) muscles are blood sugar sponges. There's lots of ways to win here. Research was done and your calf muscle burns more blood glucose than like other muscles in your body. And did you see this, Jen? I've seen that several times now. Yeah. And they said like after you eat, like if you have to go sit at your desk, Sit there and just do calf raises for like 10 minutes after you eat, and it'll burn through tons of the glucose from the food you ate. And that, to me, that was so fascinating. That's yeah. something anybody can sit and do. That's a win. Anybody it really can is. do it. But take a walk after dinner. You yeah. know, I, there's a reason why it feels good to go off, you go take a walk around the block after you eat. Yeah. It's good for yeah, you. It does. Yeah. it does, Jen. And you know, there's also in many cultures, there's different words specific to those cultures. Like I know in Italian and in Chinese and in other languages, I don't speak any of them, so I'm not going to butcher the words, but there are specific phrases for exactly that. Go take a walk after a meal. Love it. We know. If we just tune into that ancient wisdom, yeah, eat I the foods you. they ate, go back, eat those foods, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not the ones that are in the modern grocery stores, and go for a walk after dinner. It's, it's really real food. It's within food your body. Range. It's within grasp. You know, even if you're on a tight budget, if you make your focus lentils, those are so cheap. They're affordable. Mm -hmm. They really are. All right. So that was number one. The Mm -hmm. second, meal timing. Talk about that. Okay. So meal timing to me is pretty interesting. I have to say from what I've heard from my patients over the years, they usually don't know two things. One, particularly for blood sugar control, if you are planning to have three meals in a day, you should not skip lunch. That's interesting. And let me tell you why I say that. If people have breakfast and then go seven or eight, nine, 10 hours to dinner, and there was no plan in their mind, and they're not on an intermittent fasting plan, it isn't a religious holiday, there's no particular framework around this. It was just a oopsie day. They got stressed out. Their work or their family commitments or whatever just overwhelmed them and they didn't have lunch. What happens is dinner is a catastrophe. They usually overeat. Yeah. They want fast food. They want comfort food. And it just unravels all the goodness that was otherwise the potential for the day, right? Yeah. It just is a problem. The other thing I would say around meal timing is you got to give your gut rest between your meals. And in particular, the distance between dinner and bedtime is probably the most critical interval. Your gut needs to be able to do most of its digestive heavy lifting work before your head hits the pillow. I always advise three to five hours between dinner and bedtime. Then when you're asleep, you're fasting because, you know, you're asleep. You can't right, eat right. then. It's right. a natural fast, a natural yep. opportunity to hit the reset button for your blood sugar control every day and night. Are you familiar with the aura ring? I am. I'm wearing one right now. Okay. My aura <laughs> ring knows if I ate too close to bedtime. Yes, it does. And it yes, will it tell does. me, did you eat too close to bedtime? Does it really? Yes. Yeah. It knows. It absolutely does. What does it consider as too close to bedtime for you, Sherry? When does it start to get upset? Well, I mean, I don't go to bed too late. I'm a midnight or 1 a.m. to bed girl, and I usually close my eating window by 8. So, But if I if I have a night where I have a late night snack when my husband gets home from work or whatever, my ring will tell me in the morning that I ate too close to bedtime. That's funny. My heart rate is elevated. I sleep hot. My temperature is elevated. It knows. It's It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, now it's telling you. It's giving you feedback in the terms of symptoms, things you experience that your body was asked to still do a lot of work when it was also supposed to be resting, and now it's conflicted. It's not sure. What are we doing? Are we resting? 
and restoring or are we actively engaging with the food? What are we doing? Right. And then so that affects your recovery and how you go into your next day. You bet. The day sets up the night and the night sets up the day. They are intimately tied together. That is very true. You know, we all know when we wake up and we've had a, a restful night's sleep, it just, we just jump out of bed. So there's factor number three right there is <laughs> <Boom>. sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so sleep is, I think, the hidden opportunity for many people who struggle with blood sugar, with their glucose issues to really sharpen up. There's many ways for it to go wrong and many ways for it to go right. So let's talk about some simple sleep habits that can be so friendly to blood sugar. One of them is establishing a regular sleep time and a regular awake time. I'm going to repeat that. A regular sleep time and a regular awakened time. Please don't have yourself have dramatically different hours on the weekend. It is too hard on your body. Don't tell, don't look at Sherry because Sherry is a shift. night shift every weekend. She's a hospital <laughs> shift worker. But Oh, you don't, you don't want to get me started on night shift work. Oh, dear. Okay. But thank you for your work. Thank, Thank you. you for your work. Yeah. Our bodies really do like to be in a routine and I can't not be like, it's really hard. like my, I want to go to sleep at nine o'clock and I wake up at five 30 and I can't help it. So if I'm traveling to a different time zone, it's really hard. And when the time change happens, it takes me a long time to recover. Can we talk about that time change? Do we have to keep doing that? It is madness. It's terrible because I just, when I get Okay, finally, I'm, I'm adjusted. Finally, I'm back in my routine. Then we change it again. <laughs> exactly. Right. We should just go to standard time and be done. Pick one. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just <laughs> the that research would be has nice. shown that actually daylight savings time, at least in U.S. time zones, would be a worse idea for us from a health point of view. Really? It wouldn't be so friendly for getting kids to school and trying to be able to golf late in the day for those who care about those things. But from a health point of view, research has shown very clearly that regular standard time is actually healthier. Fewer heart attacks, fewer car accidents, a whole bunch of things. I know, it's it's surprising. Which one are we in right now? Is this standard? We're standard right now. I would think more sunshine in the evening would be, people would be healthier. I would think they would be outside more and, I understand what you're saying, Sherry. It turns out, we talked a little bit about genes and epigenetics and environment Uh and expression of said genes, right? So like if you have a family history of blood sugar control, listen carefully to what I say here. It turns out the amount of light, the amount of blue light we get from the sky, from our window, from being outdoors, whatever it is, or under indoor lighting, affects our genes and their expression. Mm -hmm. So if the sun is up later in the day into the night in our time zone, because we have artificially shifted that clock, we now see that people are more likely to gain weight. They're more likely to have problems with cholesterol. They're more likely to have problems with their sleep they're more likely to have problems with their blood sugar. The research wow. is really difficult about this. So I'm like, that is huh. fascinating. So Isn't that interesting? Our, basically, let me just see if I'm catching this correctly. We are genetically suited to whatever latitude our genes are from. And it, all this modern day moving around from one latitude to another may not be ideal. That's a great way to look at it. I don't know if any research has looked at that in terms of our genetic latitude heritage, but I think that's a great area to explore because some of us might be fighting against something that is intrinsically not going to work out based on where we live or how we live. And if we tune into that and maximize that opportunity for healthy genetic expression, I think that's where living long, living well, and being able to stay independent for as long as possible, I think that's where that's going to come from. Wow. So what are some of your suggestions for making sure, I know you already said go to bed and wake up at the the same time. If you can, if you're not Sherry. (laughs) (laughs) Sherry. (laughs) Well, that's one of the reasons I stay up so late during the week so that I don't have such a shift. I try try to, well, at that, I'm just a late night person. I'm not a morning person, never have been. I'm just, I'm just wired different, but I try so I don't have that drastic swing twice a week. That's smart. That's smart. It helps me like flip better that way. Yeah. Um, it doesn't yeah. seem so, like such a stress on my body. Our circadian rhythms are indeed genetic. Some of us are the morning lark. Some of us are that's me. the night owl Yeah, yep. or something in between, a mixed hybrid type. And that's fine. We are fine however we are, but we have to respect it. So good for you that you figured that out. Mm-hmm. So also, I don't think people understand that what they eat affects their sleep. Yes. And like middle of the night wakening and that sort of thing. I think people think I ate and then I went to bed and that's, they're totally unrelated. But we noticed that people in our fasting community, 
they'll say, they'll do this. Oh, I'm going to cut out sugar for 30 days. And they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, my sleep was so amazing. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night. I didn't have to get up and pee as much. I didn't wake up hot and sweaty at 2 Mm a.m. What you eat affects your sleep. It absolutely does. Just like alcohol. Yes, It, it absolutely affects your sleep. When you give your body the nutrients that it can run on most evenly and steadily, it's just going to be happier. And we know that that blood sugar is super sensitive to our intake of simple carbs, of sugars. And as such, we set ourselves up for a problem if that's something we're doing. If we're adding sugar to things, if we eat foods or beverages that have added sugars, that's all an invitation for trouble with disrupted sleep. And disrupted sleep then starts to hijack blood sugar because your body is like, I'm feeling kind of stressed. And a little stretched here. I don't really like this disruption to my sleep. And so you're more likely to wake up the next morning with an elevation in that blood sugar. It might be a mild elevation. The thing is, is that when you're asleep and you're fasting, that's the invitation for your body to hit a massive reset button. Reset button for your blood sugar. Reset button for your joints. Reset button for your soul, your spirit, your mind. Everything is reset in your gut. And if you have eaten too late, had a lot of sugar, had alcohol, you have completely wiped those opportunities away. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Wearing the the CGM. When I would have have something sweet, sugary, like I had a muffin, (laughs) a blueberry muffin that we ended up with. And I ate that at the end of my eating window. And sure enough, overnight, my blood sugar was sky high because my body was dealing with that muffin. And it definitely leads to a more restless sleep, which is not what we want. Exactly. So let's talk about stress because we seem to live in a chronically stressed out world. How does stress impact our blood glucose and our overall health? Yeah, so stress is really, you know, is a bully, right? I say it's the bully in the room that grabs you by your genetic collar, slams you up against the wall, and what's going to shake out is whatever your vulnerabilities are based on your genes. So the thing about stress and blood sugar is this. Stress and our response to stress, our cortisol release, our adrenaline release, and all the other chemicals our body releases, right, are there historically to keep us safe. They're there to turn us into a superhero if need be. It's part of our fight flight or flee or freeze response, right? So three Fs, fight, flight, freeze, all of which require the expenditure of energy. If you've ever been terrified and you freeze, you know that you were actually working quite hard in that moment. So don't underappreciate how much goes on for blood sugar response there, along with obviously fighting because you're using those active working muscles, right? Your body has to put out all that cortisol. And in response to the expression, the release of a lot more cortisol comes a lot more release of your blood sugar, your glucose, because your body says we're under threat. We have to fight and defend, or we need to flee and run away also requires the preferred easy fuel called glucose, blood sugar, boom, to get away. So in that context, then with stress, if you are chronically under stress, your body starts to release more and more blood sugar over time, because the baseline of what is a threat And what your chronic response is, is going up, 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 up. That's often where prediabetes or type 2 diabetes starts silently. People have no idea what's going on. And sometimes when they go to the doctor and they get these diagnoses, they're shocked. They have no idea where it came from. They didn't necessarily party their way to a type 2 diabetes or prediabetes diagnosis. I'm going to say that again. They did not necessarily party their way to a type 2 diabetes or prediabetes diagnosis. People can be so judgmental. They think they know the backstory of everyone who has diabetes. They do not. Mm-hmm. So stress actually causes your body to get that blood sugar up and keep it up. Yep. And in preparation for one of those three Fs, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to flee. You're going to have to freeze. So you need you need it. That's what your body is doing. Yep. Yep. It's a response to what should be a temporary situation, mm-hmm. something for minutes five to 10 minutes, like you have to lift the car off the loved one, need to get to safety. You need to to like hide, like say people are in a war situation, something like that. In today's lifestyle, today's world, I'm not going to say just lifestyle. I think that the demands of the world for many of us that we live in are very stressful in terms of perhaps our workplace or demands from family needs that maybe are unmet and people might be leaning on you. You might be their rock, so to speak. There's just a lot of ways in which people are overtaxed and don't have the same capacity to rest. In many cultures, particularly spiritual traditions, there's often something around one day a week of rest, right? whether right. it's called a Sabbath or has some other naming. And we've gotten, in terms of our modern culture, often very far from that. Stores used to be closed at least one day I a remember, week. yeah. While the workers were home, I remember it too. What we have going on now is a complete disservice to human health. 
Right. Wow. That yeah. is so true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that. I do remember that the day of rest and now instead it's like, well, we only have two weekend days. We better make the most of them. So we're running all around and we're definitely not resting. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think people even rest in the, on the weekends anymore. It's Well, you, it's considered a it's, sign of weakness to rest. Right? You've got ball right? games for your kids all day Saturday and, you know, go, go, go. And they're tailgating on Sunday and it's, yeah, we live our life as a constant motion. It's a real shift. It did not used to be like this. This is a recent shift. Mm -hmm. If you look at the data from the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, other places, and you look at it around the world, and you look at what has changed in the last 30 to 40, 50 years, you'll see this crazy rise. First, we saw with cardiovascular disease, especially in the 80s and 90s. And now we see type 2 diabetes rise. It's stunning around the world. Places all over, nowhere is spared. Yeah. Nowhere is spared. And we've also, our our diets have gotten worse. I know that goes back to nutrition, number one, but ultra-processed foods are making up the bulk of what people are eating because that's what is cheap. That's what's subsidized. I could talk about that all day. Uh Subsidized, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. It's artificially cheap. It's at the expense of other things, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. So, all right. So, I guess we just need to slow down. Would that be your best advice for stress? My best advice for stress would be to pick a handful of things that really matter. And let go of the rest. Mm -hmm. Less, not more. Yeah. Love it. You know, when people, I've noticed a lot of people think they're not stressed, right? They're like, I'm not stressed. But when you talk to them about incorporating something in their life, like meditation or yoga or whatever it is, and they take some time to pause, when they get done with that, they get that relief. And then they're like, oh, maybe I am more stressed than I thought I was. And I've heard people say that before, like, no, I don't have any stress in my life until something (laughs) happens where they really don't. And then it's a snow day and they can't go to work and they're at home with their kids. And then they're suddenly they were like, oh, wow, that was nice. I can't remember the last time I sat on the couch. So, yeah, you know, I think stress is a lot. It reminds us of, you know, the old story about the uh, frog in a pot of water on a stove. Right. And if you put the frog in the pot of water on the stove and there's no heat under the pot, frog is fine. But if you turn the heat up just a little bit under that frog, if you turn the heat up really gradually, and heat here is the metaphor for stress, the frog can't tell when that pot's approaching boiling. Right. Yeah. Right. You just get it's used just, to it little I think by we're little. all frogs if we're not careful. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a great analogy for that. All right. So number five, the fifth factor for blood sugar control is exercise. Mm-hmm. Is there a time that we should be exercising? Oh, that's a great question, particularly relative to blood sugar. So it depends on your goals. What I've seen clinically is that if people are looking to maximize the impact of losing body fat specifically, so if they're overweight or obese, the best time typically to exercise is going to be before you eat your first meal. Okay. Okay. And then you can eat your meal. You can fuel after you've had the exercise. That's just a broad principle. That's one. Mm-hmm. Another time that's great to exercise is to purposefully exercise after you've actually eaten. Because right. after all, you've just fueled the activity. That's not necessarily going to be specific to fat loss if you are specifically targeting body fat that is in excess. Now, I'm saying that very carefully because I'm not trying to tell people who maybe don't have a healthy relationship or have a history of eating disorders to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not advocating that. If you have eating disorders, etc., exercising in a fasted state might not be the best thing for you. Please do get help about that because that's a very specific situation. If, on the other hand, you're overweight, maybe you have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or you're insulin-resistant metabolic syndrome, exercising in a fasted state is the best way to go. That's one. If you are simply looking to get a hold of your blood sugar, fat loss specifically, body fat loss is not a big concern for you specifically. Exercising after you've eaten might be the better idea. And you can experiment. And if you use a CGM... If you're using a glucometer, and I always say test, don't guess, please test your blood sugar so you know how it responds to your lifestyle activities. You can find out what's the best thing for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Active working muscles, right? When, When I was wearing my CGM, if I was sitting for a while and then got up and started exerting myself, my blood sugar would spike. Because here, you know, my body's releasing it. It is sensed that I'm moving around. And so it's dumping that glycogen in fueling my body. And so that can be really confusing for people. They might think, wait a minute, I was not doing anything. And then I exercised and my blood sugar went, yeah. but it's, it's your body doing that to clear it out. Right? Right. Exactly. And what should happen is in a normal, healthy situation is after you exercise, 
while you're exercising, Sherry is absolutely, excuse me, Jen is absolutely right. Your blood sugar should go up in response mm-hmm. to that movement, that activity. We're just moving around after having been sedentary for a long period. But then your blood sugar should come back down. Right. It right. should absolutely yes. reset within about an hour, 30 minutes to an hour of completing yep. your exercise. It should get to a healthy range. That's what should happen in a normal healthy situation. That is what I noticed. That That's what did happen. I feel like The fitness and diet industry has really done a disservice to a lot of people by telling people that they need to eat before they work out. Most people are running around with plenty of glycogen in their bodies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they have have readily accessible fuel. They do not need to pre-fuel their workouts. Yeah, this idea of free fuel doesn't apply to most people. <laughs> no, say. that is so funny, though, but you're right. because they're, And usually the people who are telling you that have something they want to sell you that you're supposed to eat. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Or a workout, a pre-fuel for a workout that really doesn't make sense. I mean, unless you are an elite athlete, an Olympian, or some un, under some specific circumstance where it might actually make sense for you, uh, no. No. Yeah. I think I most of us, that. you know, just need to get moving. So let's talk about CGMs because Sherry and mm-hmm. I have each warned them. You know, I'm I'm a healthy person. Sherry was noticing her blood sugar going down, so she wanted to get a handle on on that. But why why are CGMs useful? Who should wear them? I mean, I I think everybody should because it taught me <laughs> some things. No, really, like I felt like I was very healthy. My A1C is good, but just watching how my blood sugar responded to ultra processed foods, like when I ate crackers one day and my blood sugar spiked up. And then realizing it didn't do that when I had high fiber. And what do you think about CGMs and who should be wearing them? Yeah, so CGMs, I'm a huge fan. I think that that's one of the good examples, if not a great example, of technology in service of people being healthier. They're a wonderful device and can give you insights into exactly what is your blood sugar doing, how is it responding to your lifestyle real time. It's just such a help. Certainly if someone has type 1 diabetes where it's an autoimmune onset, this is life-saving because they can really get a sense of whether their blood sugar is too high or even worse if it's super low, right? This is critical because people can die from too low or blood sugar. That's a big deal for someone who's type 1. For pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, people who care about their metabolism or people just want to know, hey, am I in a healthy range or not? The fact that the CGMs give you real-time data around your blood sugar results lets you know if what I just ate was healthful for me or not. If what my sleeping habits are, are they working for my blood sugar or not? How about how do I respond to exercise? Man, I just had a stressful call with work or with a relative or with a neighbor or whatever. And just see how your blood sugar is responding to all of these things. Time you ate your meals, kinds of exercise, resistance training. Is it more aerobic? Is it high intensity interval training? H-I-I-T, et cetera. Uh Takes the mystery out of all of that. My sauna raised my blood sugar. Like I get my, my, yeah, an infrared sauna, mm-hmm. 30 minutes in there, my blood sugar would go from like 75, 76 in the fasted state up to like maybe 110, okay. but then it, it would come right back down. That's interesting. A sauna is a stress on your body, but it's, you yeah, know, it's, it's a, a good stress. There are good stresses. So There are good stresses. They're not all bad. Well, and it's also mimicking exercise, probably, Sherry, the sauna pump, getting your right. heart rate going. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So people who really complain that they just can't eat without getting tired is, mm-hmm. I mean, how much of that is like just normal physiologic, we get tired after eating and how much is preventable? I would like to say 90 to 100% of that's preventable. I don't think it's normal to be tired after you eat. I think after you eat, you should feel energized and ready to go for your day, right? Like that's, that's what should be happening. Okay. And I do, I do notice what I eat makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The quality of the food, nutrient density, making mm-hmm. sure you aren't eating things that are full of simple sugars, the high fiber foods, the healthy fats, the lean proteins, complex, slow burning carbs, and not buckets and buckets of beans either, but like say a half cup to a cup yeah. of the slow burning carbohydrates that ought to win. People shouldn't, it's not normal to want to do a face plant after you eat lunch. Like if your head's yeah. down on the desk and you can't function hour or two after lunch, you need to look at what was in lunch that rendered you comatose. Something's wrong. People really are very, I guess, emotionally attached to the food they like. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> well, it's true, Sherry. And, and it's funny to me how many people just know a food does not work for them, but they're going to eat it anyway. And I guess my thing is like, if you're going to eat foods that you know don't work for you, then you know you're going to feel like poop 
an hour from now. And I guess, I mean, it comes down to what's more important, feeling good or eating that eating that food. delicious that's- food you can't live without. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right, Sherry. You've got to be focused on what your priorities are. And sometimes it could be like quantity. Maybe it's portion control around that food that you love so much, or maybe it's you just need to let it go, or you need to figure out how to prepare it in a way that is better for you in a healthier way. Like I have some recipes that I give out to my patients on things like collard greens or black eyed peas, et cetera. And, you know, we're always learning how to make things as healthfully as we can because it makes a difference. What if you want to have a dessert that is typically really sweet? Maybe there's a way to make it with chia seeds and coconut milk, coconut cream that would be better for you. Maybe you like cakes and all, and maybe you need to learn how to add flax seeds (laughs) to things that you cook ground flax seeds, right? Because it's a blood sugar sponge because it's a fiber. There's ways we can adjust, but you're actually right. Emotional attachments to foods that are killing us, we really have to work on psychology behind that because if we don't, we're just going to be in our own way. Mm-hmm. That's so true. So how can people connect with you? This has been such a great episode. What resources do you have? Where can people find you? Yeah, I would love to connect with anyone who's listening here on this podcast if I can be a further help. We have free resources, PDFs, all that sort of thing. You can find me at two websites right now. One is naturalhealthcare.com. Natural, just like it sounds. N-A-T-U-R-A-L, health, H-E-A-L-T-H-C-A-R-E.com. The other one is my name, D-R Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, Yates, Y-A-T-E-S.com. All right. All right. We'll put those in the show notes for people to find you. you. And this was such a great episode and I learned some new things and I know Sherry did too. And basically it helps us to know that that we're on the right track and that we can make a difference in in our future health. We can all make that difference. Jim, Sherry, thank you so much for the work you each do. You guys are great interviewers and you know, your community, your focus, the things that you're doing are changing people's lives. And I, I get tingles thinking about Me it. Me too. Yeah. Like a time ripple. Like yeah. you're changing history in people's lives in such wow. a beautiful way. So I want to encourage you and just send my admiration and support because this is so necessary in today's world to be clear, to be a beacon of hope and making sure people are doing things that are in service of their health instead of destroying it. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. And now it's time for our listener-led lesson. It could be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from Donna from Ocean County, New Jersey. Donna says, this is such a simple thing, but it has made me happy every time I use my dishwasher, which is all the time. I always have had a hard time fitting in items that are tall and then things will hit the rotating arm. So I normally just give up trying to fit it in and end up washing it by hand. That is until I found that most dishwashers, if not all, have a lever on each side of the top rack that allows you to raise and lower it as necessary. Never knew that. I raised the top rack, which has made a big difference in fitting the tall items on the bottom rack so the rotating arm can do its thing. And then she said, love your podcast. Do you know if your dishwasher does that? See, here's the thing. They don't all do it. And it's funny because I thought that I always had to have a dishwasher that did that. When we had Bosch dishwashers, they did Uh that. And I would raise it up, lower it down, and you could fit things in differently. But for whatever reason, Maytag dishwashers, when we moved here, this house that I'm in, that's my office now, but this house had a Maytag dishwasher, and the way that the the top rack is, it's fixed. You can't raise or lower it, but everything fits in it. I can't. It's like the, something about that dishwasher. It just everything tall fit. You can put things in the top. You can put things in the bottom. It's like angled. The top rack uh-huh. is is angled in a certain way, so it doesn't go up and down. But it like everything is fabulous. So we got a Maytag for our the beach house as well because that dishwasher you you remember how loud it was right. uh-huh. it sounded like a helicopter was taking off in the uh-huh. kitchen it was so loud. <laughs> yes so i got instead of like bosch i always have bought bosch dishwashers for you know since 2015 or something or no 2009 so we got our first bosch but now i am in love with maytag well i bought a bosch under your recommendation i know well, i loved it but now i like maytag <laughs> But mine does not go up and down because I have that third 
like drawer rack at the top. Are you sure it doesn't go down? I don't think it is adjustable. I looked at that because I saw this hack somewhere and I think I went and looked and it doesn't go up or down. All I've right. got that third I've got that third rack like for silverware and Yeah, like, I had that on my last Bosch, but it still went up and down. It did it? Well, I'm gonna look again. Like on the side, you press the little thing and it went up and down. But see, I don't have a third rack on this Maytag and that gives you more room, which well, I, I don't like. like the third rack. I, would I don't like do the third again. rack either. But something about this Maytag and this is not sponsored by Maytag. <laughs> this is just <laughs> me explaining how much I love my Maytag. And I never would have known it if it didn't just happen to be in this house. But the way the racks are set up are so versatile. Like you can put things in anyway, instead of being like you must like put you, your dishes right. in a certain way. The way they're spaced, you can like do anything. And I don't, I can't explain it. It's the best dishwasher and y'all, I've ever Jen had. Jen is the dishwasher queen, I okay? Can. Listen, she puts everything in the dishwasher. I do, and everything just fits in it. Like used to with my Bosch that I love, and thought was the best dishwasher in the world, there would still, I would have to sometimes play around to get things in. Things might not fit. Everything fits into this Maytag. I don't understand it. Like defies the laws of physics. Does it dry your dishes? It's fabulous. Yes. Okay. My Bosch leaves things super wet. This is just an amazing dish. I mean, I never would have said, let's go get a Maytag dishwasher. I don't know. But I love them. Yeah. Well, you know, one day when I remodel my kitchen, I'll I'll keep that. Keep it in mind. Put that in my pocket. (laughs) Well, at the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Michelle Klein. She wrote, I'm sharing an essay with you that has always resonated with me. It was written by Elizabeth Gilbert and published in her book, Big Magic. What book did she write that was so popular? Was she Eat, Pray, Love? Yes. Okay. I never never read it. I never read it either. Okay. I thought that's who she was. So she says, I reread this every once in a while to remind myself that my creativity, optimism, tenacity, and passion should be running the show, not my fear. It reminds me that I don't have to abolish my fear. I just can choose to not give it a voice in my decisions. I can do the same with my anxiety and all the other negative thoughts in my noggin. So this essay is titled, I think she said it's called Dearest Fear, and it's from a book called Big Magic. It goes, Dearest Fear, creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job to do in my life and that you take your job seriously. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting. And may I say, you are superb at your job. So by all means, keep doing your job if you feel you must, but I will also be doing my job on this road trip, which is to work hard and stay focused. And creativity will be doing its job, which is to remain stimulating and inspiring. There's plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us. So make yourself at home, but understand this. Creativity and I are the only ones who will be making any decisions along the way. I recognize and respect that you are part of this family, And so I will never exclude you from our activities, but still, your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat and you're allowed to have a voice, but you are not allowed to have a vote. You're not allowed to touch the roadmaps. You're not allowed to suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you're not even allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, my dear old friend, you are absolutely forbidden to drive. Oh, I love that. So I thought that was wonderful. We do let fear run our life sometimes. We really, really do. And that's the thing. If we could just stop letting fear guide our decisions, Mm -hmm. it would make such a difference. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to have you join us in the private Life Lessons VIP community. Go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to become a VIP podcast supporter. Your membership ensures that we can keep bringing you episodes of the Life Lessons Podcast each week. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Reviews really do help us reach new listeners. We're a community-driven podcast, and here's how you can be a part of our show each week. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise that you would like to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? 
Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com or use the link in show notes and then listen each week to hear your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.